Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Radiant Church, verse by verse through Titus. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It probably goes without saying that the presidency of Richard Nixon is a blemish on our country's legacy that we would prefer to all forget. After Nixon's impeachment in 1973 for the Watergate scandal, uh, investigators discovered that one of the chief architects of, uh, behind his illegal schemes was a man named Chuck Colson, who served as special counsel on Nixon's staff. Colson gave his life to Christ later that year in 1973 and uh, pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice and then went to prison. After being released from prison a year later, Colson was broken and repentant and received a new calling from the Lord. He founded a ministry called Prison Fellowship. He also became a prolific author, writing more than 30 books, the first one of which was his autobiography called Born Again. In it, Colson details his experiences related to the Watergate scandal and how he came to know the Lord. He also shares what he believed to be one of President Nixon's biggest problems. He could never admit he was wrong in anything. In fact, Colson says that when Nixon obviously had a cold, his face was red, nose running, sneezing, all the symptoms, he would never admit it. I assume you will agree with me that such pride is both scary and repulsive. And What I find scarier, though, is the fact that We can't stand pride in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. Therefore, if you're sitting here thinking this sermon is for me, you're right. I need to hear it. But I've also been praying this week that you'll see that this sermon is for you, too. And that's because if we think we've gained humility, then we've lost it. And if we don't think we need humility, then we better get it. We're continuing our study in the book of Titus today in a series called Radiant Church. Uh, The title of this message is Living on Humble Pie. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Titus chapter 3. And if you forgot your Bible, uh, just raise your hand and we can loan you one of ours. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along with us. Uh, There's an outline in the worship folder that you received when you came in today that gives you uh, some blanks that you can fill in and a structure of what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Uh, The key verse, or excuse me, the book of Titus is uh, just as a little uh, refresher, a little background since we took a break from Titus last week. Um, The book of Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his pastoral protege of the same name. Uh, Titus was left by his mentor on the island of Crete. It's a Mediterranean island. And Titus was tasked with the difficult assignment of uh, fixing up, cleaning up some unruly church plants that were there. The main goal that Paul had set for Titus 
as well as the name of this series, comes from the verse uh, in chapter 2, verse 10. It's the key verse for this series that I've invited you to memorize with me. It says that so that in every way we can make the teaching about our God and our Savior attractive. The Apostle believed that in order for local churches like ours to reach lost people uh, with the good news about Jesus Christ, that such churches needed to be radiant, attractive. Radiant churches make the gospel attractive to an ugly, ugly world. One way our church can become radiant is by passionately pursuing humility. And this is because, and this happens to be our big idea for today, the sermon in one sentence, and I want to encourage you to write this down, would be this, recipients of God's grace should be known for their humility. Recipients of God's grace should be known for their humility. The Apostle Paul knew the dangers and repulsiveness of pride in his own heart. Thus, when he saw it in the churches on the island of Crete, he wasted no time addressing the issue. And if pride's one thing that can push people away from the Lord's church, then humility is certainly something that can attract them to it. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a few weeks ago, um, we looked at the apostle calling various believers from different demographic groups, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, so on and so forth, and he, he called them to prove their authenticity, uh, the authenticity of their faith, excuse me, by living a life of godliness. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul explains why those who claim to know Christ should be constantly transformed by his grace. And so in today's passage, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, he kind of shifts his focus a little bit and says, here's how Christ followers should live a life of humility in a lost world because of God's abundant grace. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 5, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he instantly provided a reason why we should pursue humility. In other words, both Paul and Peter, uh, I think, show us that grace and humility are inextricably connected. Paul says that grace should motivate us to pursue humility, and Peter says humility is a means by which we can get more grace. So, here's the catch, though. Pursuing humility is easier said than done. Because the scriptures teach that our inherited sin nature causes us to have pride that resides in all of our hearts. In fact, some of you right now may be listening to this going, oh man, I wish this was one of those days that I just would have skipped church, would have just done something else, slept in, I could have watched the political shows on Sunday morning TV, I mean, that, that would have been better. Uh, humility is such a boring topic. Well, it's your pride that's thinking that way. Because <laughs> I used to be like that too. It shows up in different ways in each of us, pride does. For example, some people are humble enough to serve others, but pridefully express their opinions when not asked. Some people are humble enough to be good listeners, but they're too proud to be vulnerable to let anybody get close enough to them to really know who they are. 
Others are humble enough to admit they aren't perfect, but seek attention and praise for anything that they do. Or they're crushed by even the smallest amount of criticism. So it's not, the question is not whether we have pride, it's where does pride show up in our lives and in our hearts? We all have aspects of humility, but we all manifest fruits of pride. And so, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, follow along with me as I read. Paul says to Titus, remind them, meaning the churches there on the island of Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, please note, uh, again, the apostle is saying, based on the context in, in chapter 2, uh, in, the, in, in chapter 2, 11 to 14, he talked about God's grace and how God's grace motivated him to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Well, he's continuing to talk about grace. And in essence, what Paul is saying is that if you're a benefactor of God's grace through a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, then that grace should motivate you to do these things in this passage. I'm going to break it down for you into four points, four truths. The first one is this. Grace recipients should humbly, they humbly respect civil authorities. Grace recipients humbly respect civil authorities. Paul, uh, having to address this issue, strongly suggests that Cretan Christians were not known for being submissive. This is at least the fourth time uh, he has addressed this topic in this letter. It came up in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3. Every chapter of the book of Titus, Paul talks about submissiveness. Now, despite the civil rights movement of the last century accomplishing some needed change in our country, I fear that it's created a culture of rebellion against authority, though, in our country. It's not Christ-honoring. Is it okay to protest and speak out about moral and biblical issues? Absolutely. So long as it's done peacefully. Is it okay to destroy property, harm others, and protest issues of preference? Absolutely not. God's word doesn't allow room for that. So Paul says grace recipients humbly respect civil authorities. You know, it's, uh, we're approaching my favorite time of year, um, one of my favorite times of year. Football season is about to start. And I was thinking this week about how uh, 
Every fall, teams take the field wearing uniforms. Uh, one with a away uniform, the other with a home uniform. Uh, there are reasons why they don't just show up in their street clothes to play the game on the field. Uh, first one that comes to mind is that their street clothes are not designed for the game. Their uniforms are. Uh, next uh, reason, I think, is that their uniforms help the officials and fans to tell the difference between the home team and the away team. Or who's the good guys and who are the bad guys. Who am I supposed to cheer for? Who am I supposed to cheer against? Uh, third reason why they put uniforms on when they play the game is that the uniforms remind them that they represent something bigger than any one individual player. They are representing their school and all the players that played before them. Well, when Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 5, he told the Christians living under the tyrannical ruler Nero, who I talked about a few weeks ago, in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, toward one another. In other words, like a football team, put on a playing uniform, put on a uniform that, that because the Lord wants Christ followers to have humility. Why? Because the street clothes of pride are not suited for ministry or witnessing. Because putting on the uniform of humility distinguishes the believers from the unbelievers. It sets us apart. And putting on the uniform of humility, clothing ourselves with humility, reminds us that we represent something bigger than ourselves. We represent the Lord and we represent his church. So, application, because we want to be doers of the word here at Vanguard, as Bob mentioned in his prayer earlier, here's an application that comes to mind. Trust that God has dominion over civil authorities. This includes what we say about them on social media and in conversations with friends regarding politics. I realize some of you are not on social media yet. I'm praying for you that you will eventually get on there. But what we say... Uh, in situations about, say, political conversations, what we say says a lot about our submissiveness, which then says a lot about our humility or lack thereof. Instead of complaining or criticizing our current political climate and all the players, I instead want to challenge you to fill up your social media feeds and your conversations with friends on the golf course or over tea or coffee. Uh, talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about the positive, encouraging, hopeful truths in the scriptures about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we need to get Jesus out there and talk about him. Because he's the only, only king forever. But also, he is the only leader that we can trust. And he's the only leader that can make everything right. No other fallen man, regardless of what political party he's from, can fix things in this country or in this world. Only Jesus can. So we should be talking about him. Next, Paul says that if you've experienced God's grace through Jesus Christ, then here's number two. Grace recipients should humbly relate to others. Grace recipients humbly relate to others. He says in verse two, speak evil of no one. Uh, the, the, the word is sometimes translated slander. It comes from the Greek word blasphemo. Does that sound familiar? 
Yeah, it means to discredit or to damage the reputation of someone. The slander could be just your perception of that person, which may or may not be true. But even if it is true, it's most likely not your job to inform the church or the community about it. Next, Paul says, avoid quarreling. The word in the original language literally means to be a non-fighter or not contentious. Not an agitator, not easily agitated. In other words, don't get into stupid fights. It's not worth it. Even if we think we've won the argument, there's almost always shrapnel left in the relationship, or we can even lose the relationship. Paul gives a similar admonition to Timothy, who was over in Ephesus, when he wrote this, 2 Timothy 2.23. Paul said to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies, knowing that they just breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Pursuing humility... As a church is important. It's important because because pride undermines and divides churches. If you show me a church that's filled with quarreling, and I've seen some, and I know you have too, then I'll show you a church that's divided, and I'll show you a church that's filled with pride. See, because churches that are filled with people that are clothed with humility, it's amazing. They don't have a lot of quarreling going on, and they're not divided, they're united. You know, I, I don't watch uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon because it's past my bedtime, but I do sometimes catch highlights of recent shows on social media. One of my favorite bits that uh, Jimmy does is called hashtags. Perhaps you've seen it. Uh, what he will do is uh, pose a question in the form of a hashtag on Twitter so that fans can respond to the topic with a quick story in 140 characters or less. And so, for example, here's, here's a few that responded to the hashtags, my stupid fight or my dumb argument. Right? One person uh, tweeted in, in sixth grade, me and my friend had a fight over whose father was fatter. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else uh, tweeted in to Jimmy and said, um, one time my parents got into a fight because my dad tried to convince my mom that his leg cramp was as painful as childbirth. (laughs) Yeah. Probably not going to win that one. Probably not. So, again, responding to the hashtag, my stupid fight or my dumb argument, um, somebody, I love this one, somebody tweeted in and said, I was caught in a traffic jam, So I yelled at a guy, you have a nice day. And he yelled back, no, I won't have a nice day. (laughs) I could see see myself doing that. That's why I probably love that one. Um, Here's another last one. Um, My friend and I once fought over whether Mr. Monopoly and the Pringles guy were brothers. (laughs) I never thought of that. I never thought of that. They might be onto something. What's my point? Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you shouldn't be having dumb arguments like these folks did. Walk away from those. Okay, fine. If you want to believe that Mr. Pringles and Mr. Monopoly are related, go ahead. You can have that one. I'll let you win that, okay? It's just not worth it. 
So, but I know what you're asking. Well, how can I avoid these stupid quarrels? How can I do that? Well, I want to give you some applications here on this one. There's four. Uh, just some pastoral counsel or wisdom that I hope will help you. Um, it, they've helped me. I'm still working to apply these, but um, I've seen it reduce the amount of quarrels that I find myself in. So here's uh, application one. Focus daily on conquering your own sin, your own sin struggles, instead of dwelling on the sin struggles of others. Focus daily on conquering your own sin struggles instead of dwelling on the sin struggles of others. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but others have a lot of sin struggles. <laughs> well, they think the same thing about you. So, so you're probably familiar with Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. That's in the Sermon on the Mount where uh, Jesus says, First take the log out of your own eye. Note, it's a much larger piece of wood that he's referring to. Like it would go on a truck, like an 18-wheeler. Okay? Um, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, which would require a microscope to find, um, out of your brother's eye. What's Jesus really saying in Matthew 7? Well, I think he's really saying if you're going to criticize someone, criticize yourself first. Because taking the speck out of another person's eye, it's important. The text clearly says that in Matthew 7. It's important. But you shouldn't do it until you've dealt with or owned your own sin first. And we, when we fail to do this, we tend to have a critical spirit. In critical spirit, people with critical spirits tend to get in a lot of quarrels. I love this quote from the great evangelist and Pastor D.L. Moody because it wisely captures the humility we should have and uh, how we see ourselves and others. D.L. Moody once said, Right now I'm having so much trouble with D.L. Moody that I don't have time to find fault with the other fellow. Why don't you just, let me just put your own name in there. Right now I'm having so much trouble with Carrie. I don't have time to pick on anybody else. Carrie's got enough problems. So focus daily on conquering your own sin struggles instead of dwelling on the sin struggles of others. Here's a second application. Have fewer opinions and more biblical convictions. Have fewer opinions and more biblical convictions. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but delights, he, and he only delights in expressing his own opinions. Fools are quick to say, I think and I feel. And you know what I think? And that's stupid and that makes no sense. They're quick to say those things. They have a thought on everything. They're not interested in learning from others. They're not interested in getting to know others. They just want to be heard. And they want to be heard a lot. Sadly, I think there are too many Christians today turning their opinions into convictions while allowing their convictions to weaken into opinions. The solution is have fewer opinions. And learn God's word so that you have more biblical convictions. Because what's written in this book is the only thing worth fighting for. It's the only thing that's timeless. The only thing that's unchanging. I know, some of you are thinking, well, if I have fewer opinions and I, I don't express my opinions, then I'll have nothing to talk about. Well, <laughs> you need to get into God's word then. And if you're asked for your opinion, 
I suggest qualifying it humbly by saying, you know, I could be wrong, and I often am, but I think. Or, this is just my humble opinion, so take it or leave it. You, know, you may have a different view on this, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. It shows that you're, 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 you're clothing yourself with humility and acknowledging that you are not an authority on the topic. And that you could be wrong on this particular topic, and the other person might know something you don't know. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Doing so, though, can reduce the number of quarrels that you walk into throughout the week. So have fewer opinions and more biblical convictions. Here's number three, the application number three, excuse me. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. James 1.19 talks about that. Listening to other people shows that you value them and what they have to say. It also reduces the likelihood of a misunderstanding, which can, in turn, reduce the chance of an argument. On the other hand, interrupting, talking too much about yourself, and other things like that can communicate that you don't value them. You don't value what they think or say. And it can increase the chance of an argument. And here's the fourth application. Be quick to apologize and slow to justify. Be quick to apologize and slow to justify. Uh, Proverbs says that the proud person will fight hard to justify their sin or mistakes, which often leads to foolish quarrels. On the other hand, it says that those that are pursuing humility welcome correction because they know it'll help them grow. Proverbs says the wise man uh, receives a rebuke or correction because he knows he'll gain intelligence and wisdom from it. In fact, uh, wise, humble people are quick to admit they were wrong instead of procrastinating it. Proverbs 28, 13, which I referenced there on your outline, it says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. People are often quick to forgive you if you're quick to admit you were wrong. But the more you procrastinate and justify and try and cover it up, the less likely they will be to show you some grace. So if it's been a long time since you've apologized to someone or you just find the words, I'm sorry, or not in your vocabulary at all, or if you struggle to apologize when someone brings a concern to your attention, then you're putting yourself on the same playing field as God. See, God never has to apologize to anybody because he's perfect. And if you say, well, nobody's perfect, but then refuse to apologize, you're contradicting yourself because you're saying, well, nobody's perfect and I'm a nobody, but I'm not imperfect enough that I have to apologize. That would be illogical. It's incongruent. <laughs> So, next, Paul says, if you've received God's grace through Jesus Christ, and here's number three, the fourth, excuse me, the third major point, grace recipients humbly remember who they were. They humbly remember who they were. Look at verse three with me again. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul does a little throwback Thursday here for Titus and the Cretans. He, he says, remind them where they came from so they never forget. Remind them of who they used to be. That should affect who they are now. Paul paints a wanted poster for the unrepentant rebel on the run from God, separated from him by his or her own sin. Verse 3 describes anyone that has um, uh, been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ before they were saved. Verse 3 describes everyone who has yet to make that life-changing decision. So let's do a little exercise together. Just want to make sure you're paying attention here. This is a little commercial break in the sermon, and then we'll get back to the good stuff, all right? So um, put your face on this wanted poster here. This is a real wanted poster from the late 1800s, 1890s. But I want you to put your face on that wanted poster. And notice it was common on wanted posters that the crimes committed would be listed on the poster. This person is wanted, here's the reward, and here's what they did wrong that violated the law. So I want you to put your face on that wanted poster that you see on the keynote screen behind me. Next, as you look at your Bibles in verse 3, I'd like you to substitute your name in verse 3. So instead of, for we ourselves, say, I, Carrie, was once foolish. Change the, change the, uh, the we to singular, okay? So let's, let's do it out loud together in your Bible. We'll do it on the count of three, and I'm going to do it here in my Bible. Let's read verse three out loud together, but put your name in verse three. I believe in you. You can do this. One, two, three. For Carrie was once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing his days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Very good. Now, if you're a Christ follower, you can, you can say, well, that used to be me. That's not me anymore. And if you've not yet given your life to Christ, then you need to change the verb tense to that's who I am. But you don't have to be that way anymore. So, um, interestingly, though, I want you to realize that God's word has nothing, nothing, nothing positive to say about the spiritual condition of those separated from Christ. Nothing good to say. And here's why that's important. Because it has everything positive to say about those that have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Therefore, if you are a believer, that means you should never, ever look back on your old life and wish you could go back there. Never, ever. Because it wasn't better. It wasn't. And God's word doesn't say anything good. In fact, it says hundreds of bad things about your life apart from Christ. The Lord says you're not missing anything. And if you're not a believer yet, don't wish to stay in your current life. The Lord says you're missing out on a whole lot because there's hundreds of thousands of blessings that come with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I so desperately want to get this across to you. I want to ask for a little help. I'm going to use my lifeline, and I'm going to tap on one of my 
favorite authors, he's becoming one of my favorite authors, um, J.C. Ryle. He was a 19th century Anglican evangelical bishop. He once wrote this about humility and the connection between humility and grace. And so uh, follow along with me as I read this. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, Ryle says, Forgiven souls are humble. They cannot forget that they owe all they have and hope for to free grace. And this keeps them lowly. They are brands plucked from the fire, debtors who could not pay for themselves, captives who would have remained in prison forever but for undeserved mercy, wandering sheep who were ready to perish when the shepherd found them. What right, then, have they to be proud? We have nothing we can call our own but sin and weakness. So there is no garment that befits us so well as humility. That's a good spot for an amen if you believe that. Now, this brings me to a question. What is humility? It's popular in the marketplace today as a term, and I see it in a lot of secular leadership literature. But here's a biblical definition for humility I want to give you. Humility is a sober awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. Humility is a sober awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. The secret to living a life of humility, a life marked by humility, is having deep in your heart an honest, accurate sense of who you are in light of who God is. And if that is out of whack, you will struggle to have humility and you will be prideful. This kind of heart, having an honest, accurate assessment of who you are in light of who God is should then influence how we think about ourselves and others. But when we forget who we are and who God is, we will struggle with pride and lose humility. So application, very simple, three words, avoid spiritual amnesia. Avoid spiritual amnesia. Reflect on who you were before Jesus changed your life. Ask him to remind you if you can't remember. Pray over passages like this one or Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans 3 are similar passages where Paul describes the condition of unbelievers. And if you got saved as a child, and so maybe you're going, well, I can't remember what my life was like. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. That's okay. Ask the Lord to show you. He'll probably just say, look at your kids. (laughs) Look at your kids. You see how selfish they are? You see how they whine when they don't get what they want? That was you before you knew Jesus. Or look at your grandkids, if it's been that long. Just look at them and see how they act, and you'll know how you acted before you knew Christ. Finally, Paul says that if you've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, And having a relationship with him, here's the final point, number four. Grace recipients humbly remember who they are. See, previously he says in verse three, you you need to remember who you were. Now you need to remember who you are in the present tense. It's in verses four through eight. I'm going to read it again real quick. 
He says, but when the goodness and kindness, loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is a trustworthy one, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So grace recipients, remember who they are. Notice the word, the, the conjunction, but there in verse 4. Paul likes to use these in his writings, and it's an important word that we should not miss. It's a conjunction used to introduce an idea that is contrary or contrast what was just stated. I like to call it a pivot in the text where Paul is going one way and then he turns and he goes this way. So, so he says, here's who you used to be, a child of wrath, depraved, lost, on the proverbial highway to hell, but then God showed up and he introduces something that contradicts what he just said. So, in verses 4 through 8, he explains how Jesus changed our precarious spiritual condition. Then in verse 4, the goodness and kindness of God, it's a reference to God's extravagant, generous grace, which he started talking about in chapter 2. I defined grace for you a couple of weeks ago, but just in case you missed it or need to hear it again, here it is. You can write it down on your outline. It's God's undeserved acceptance of me through Jesus Christ and the divine enablement to become like him. Grace is God's undeserved acceptance of me through Jesus Christ and the divine enablement to become like him. Grace is what allowed God to be judge and justifier. He cannot ignore our sin, but we cannot be reconciled to him while remaining in sin. And grace is one of the solutions to that problem. So in verse 5, you'll note that Paul explicitly writes, He saved us. It's, it's, it's a, it means literally in the Greek text, to rescue or save from destruction. If you need a word picture, just imagine yourself drowning in the Atlantic Ocean, and the Coast Guard comes and plucks you out. There's, there's no land anywhere around, and you have no life preserver. You, you can't swim your way out of the mess. You, you're, you're in a storm. You're getting blown by big 30-foot waves, and your only hope is the Coast Guard showing up and pulling you out with their helicopter or their, their boat. Well, in a similar sense, that's how we are born. We are born in sin, born in bondage, drowning in our sin until we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. But for some reason, I, I, I fear that some Christians, the longer they're saved, they start to maybe think that, well, you know, I had a life preserver on just in case Jesus didn't show up. You know, I, I really wasn't that bad of a person when I got saved. I can't even remember how bad I was, which I think is why Paul writes verses like verse 3. Because he said, don't forget how messed up you were. Don't forget you had to be rescued. Rescued. So did we contribute anything to our salvation? To the peace and forgiveness that we enjoy? Paul's answer is adamantly, no, 
No, because look at verse 5. It's not because of any works that you did. There was no works you could do that would be good enough. Now, this is an important clarification that Paul's making here because good works are important. They should be a response to God's grace after our salvation experience. We should want to do good works for the Lord because of what he rescued us from. Now, as I said earlier, grace and humility are inextricably connected. If you understand grace, then you should be pursuing humility. And if you have too much pride, it's because you do not understand grace. You don't know what you've been saved from. In fact, it's theologically and logically impossible to come to Christ prideful or to remain in Christ prideful. It's just not, it's not possible. Andrew Murray, the 17th century South African pastor, said it better than I can. He once said, pride must die in you or nothing in heaven can live in you. So application, what do we do with this? Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. I know I've said this before, but um, I, get, I got this idea. I, I think I've used this as an application before, but I got it from um, uh, Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace. And he explains it better than I could, so I'll let him explain it. Bridges writes, To preach the gospel to yourself daily means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God for you, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you if you know Christ. Every day. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. That will help you remember who you are in Christ. Well, I recently picked up a copy of a classic uh, Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. I had heard about it for years, but for reasons I can't explain, I, I only started reading it recently, and, or only picked it up recently and started reading it. Um, the Valley of Vision contains several prayers indexed by various topics, such as mercy and trials and loneliness, and it's, it's sort of a, a collection of prayers from famous um, Puritan preachers, um, Spurgeon and other well-known guys, Thomas Watson, that um, were very influential in our faith from probably the 17th to the 19th century. Um, I'd like to close our time together today by reading portions of a prayer on pride in this powerful little book. And I, I want to share it with you because I was struck by the, the mindset, the thinking in this prayer. And I think it it's a great way for us to close because I think we need to think like this. So, uh, the author writes in his prayer to the Lord, Let not pride swell my heart. In my body I surpass not the meanest reptile. Every faculty of mind and body is thy undeserved gift. Low as I am a creature, I am lower as a sinner. I have trampled on thy law times without number. Lowest abasement is my due place. 
for I am less than nothing before thee. Humble my heart before thee, as water flows down to fertilize lowest vales, so make me the lowest of the lowly. When I am tempted to think highly of myself, grant me to see the wily power of my spiritual enemy and to cling with determined grasp to my humble Lord. Keep me humble, meek, and lowly. Can you make that your prayer this morning? Because recipients of God's grace should be known for their humility. If you need prayer after our service or have questions about a personal relationship with Jesus, I'll be available after the service to talk with you or pray with you. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, um, you know that talking about humility pricks the skin of pride. And Lord, for those of us, all of us that have pride in our hearts, and we all do because of our inherited sin nature, Lord, to hear that we need to be humble or humble ourselves instantly just puts up a barrier. It puts up the walls of our heart because we don't like to hear it. Lord, I know I... I used to be like that, and I'm, I'm getting better by your grace at being willing to hear that I need to be humble and humble myself. Lord, I ask, please, that you would help our church to grow in that area. Father, help us to be a church that passionately pursues humility. Because we know that humility not only is pleasing to you, and it brings many blessings but also it's attractive to the outside world. Even the outside world appreciates humility when others show it. Father, for um, those that are here that are maybe struggling with, they don't see their own pride, um, or maybe they're living with someone they think's more prideful than them, Lord, would you just speak to their heart and minister to them? Just show them what you want them to do. Lord, would you help us to be a church that focuses first on our own sin, our own struggles, and even talks about them openly and, and asks for help, encouragement, prayer, accountability before we start criticizing and picking apart others. Lord, I ask for your blessing on our church. We want to be a church known for humility because your word says you draw near. You desire to be close to those that are contrite and humble. But you push away from those that are prideful. And Lord, we need your presence in this church. We want your favor and your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.